The text for this morning's message is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 27. Put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new nature, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away falsehood, let everyone speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. The emotional life of God and his children is very, very complex. The inner workings of God's heart are not simple. For example, in Exodus 34, 6, it says that God is slow to anger. And in Psalm 103, 9, it says that God will not always chide. He will not keep his anger forever. And in Psalm 7, verse 11, it says that God is a righteous judge who has anger every day. In other words, every day, God's anger is rising slowly against some. And every day, his anger is fading away against others. And every day, his anger is being preserved at full fury towards others. In his infinite complexity, God experiences the absence, the rise, the presence, and the fall of anger simultaneously. And yet, he's a God of peace. The hurricane of his anger is swallowed up in the peace of the divine mind. He is not a slave to anger like wild, bitter men who feel nothing else every day. The hurricane of his wrath is like a cosmic piston that fires in an engine that idles beautifully. Or it's like a great churning generator far within a massive dam supplied by a great reservoir of peaceful water. We grope, we stumble around for images and flashes to understand the rising, falling, perpetual, propitiated wrath of God. His heart is infinitely complex. It's not surprising then that the hearts of his children and the way they experience anger is also complex. And that his teaching about anger is not an easy teaching. It's not simple. It's not A, B, C, finished, on to a new topic. And therefore, I think he precedes these verses on anger in 26 and 27 with verses about a renewed mind and a new creation. And I want to look at those verses with you so that we don't approach anger without the apostolic order. Let's read verses 22 to 24. Put off your old nature 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful lusts or is ruined through desires of deceit. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new nature created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness or in the righteousness and holiness of truth. Now, let's just list the contrast between these verses so we get it clear. There's an old nature and there's a new nature. The old one is to be put off. The new one is to be put on. The old one is corrupted. The new one is created. The old one is corrupted according to desires that flow from deception. The new one is created according to God in a righteousness that flows from truth. So old nature, new nature, put off, put on, corrupted, created according to desires, according to God. Deceit, truth. Just see the contrast running through the verses. Now, focus in with me on this word created. The new nature, your new nature, if you are in Christ, was created. We do not produce our new nature. It is a divine, supernatural work of creation. Chapter 2, verse 1 said, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. Then verse 5 says, and yet in his great mercy, he made us alive. He created us. He raised us from the dead into something new. So our new nature is God's creation. Or as verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's a supernatural work of grace. The new nature. And so we naturally ask, well, then, what's our task? What do we do if this is God's work within us? And verse 23 and 24 give the answer. We are to put on the new nature. When God creates a new heart, he doesn't cancel out consciousness. We are very conscious, hour by hour, moment by moment, of making choices. Either we choose to follow the way of deception or we choose to follow the way of truth. So the choices that are presented before us are just as real after we are born anew or created anew as they were before. And the difference is that our character, our heart, is changed. The source of choosing, the root of choices is new. So when Paul says, put it on this new nature, he means act it out. If you have been created anew after the likeness of God, clothe yourselves with godly garments. Now, what is clothing? Clothing is what people see. When you put clothing around yourself, you give up something for people to look at. That's presentable. So when Paul says, clothe yourselves, put on your new nature, he means let that inner reality that God has created work itself out in visible actions and behaviors and attitudes. Become what you are within. If the hidden spring has been purified, let the visible streams run clean. But of course, if the spring is purified, the streams will run clean. If the tree is good, the fruit will be good. 
Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth does speak. Christian morality is the experience of an inner miracle. Nothing less. But the experience of that miracle in moment-by-moment living includes conscious choices to go the way of truth and not the way of deceit. And these choices are the fruit that show that the tree is good. These choices are the stream that shows that the spring has been cleansed. These choices are the obedience that confirm your calling and election and make it sure. If we fail to understand the miraculous in verses 22 to 24, we will most surely go astray when we get to verses 26 and 27. If we neglect to understand that the Christian life, as it is lived out, is a miracle, then all our pursuit of morality or holiness will become striving in our own strength. We will chalk it up to our merit and it will redound to our glory. And the purpose of God to be glorified in his creatures will fall. And therefore, there's a lot at stake in very practical things like stealing and truth-telling and anger. And that's what this text in verses 25 to 28 is about. And we're just going to take one of those three, namely anger, this morning and talk about it. Let's read verses 26 and 27. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, remember, the general admonition of these verses is put off the old man Clothe yourselves, put on the new man created by Christ. Now, the specific is put off bad anger and put on good anger. Not all anger is bad. Some anger is good. Verse 26 seems to make two statements about anger. Number one, there is a time to get angry. And number two, the time to stay angry is short. Now, let's look at those one at a time. First, there is a time to get angry. Be angry and do not sin. There's a bad anger. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away. Put away your anger. Be angry and sin not. It is not simple. The human heart remade by Christ is complex and thus issues in these kinds of statements. What's bad anger and what's good anger? Well, I have two suggestions to make about what good anger is. Two things. Good anger is based on God And good anger is mingled with grief. Let me show you what I mean by each of those. James chapter 1 verse 19 says, Let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Now, if I understand what that text means, it's something like this. The anger that rushes in quickly is very likely mere human anger that accomplishes no good for God in the world. 
And therefore, we should hold the reins on our anger and, like the psalmist says, rule our spirit and consider the matter. Then it may be that anger will still be given rein, but then it will probably be God's anger. That is, anger at something because God's purposes are being resisted or God's character is being maligned, not our purposes merely or our character. Good anger is targeting sin against God, not just assaults against us. The second thing that characterizes good anger is that it's mingled with grief. There's one instance that I know of in the Gospels where it says explicitly Jesus got angry. And it isn't the cleansing of the temple, though I don't doubt he was angry there. It was when he was in the synagogue in Mark chapter 3, and there was a man with a withered hand, and Jesus was going to heal him. And the Pharisees were adamantly opposed to this healing on the Sabbath. And it says in verse 5 of Mark 3, Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. I was reading a book last week that had in it teaching that is so wrong and so harmful to the church and so offensive to the glory of God. I got so angry. I want to just rip that book in half. And I think condition number one for good anger had been met. That was God's glory I was upset about. But that is not enough to make good anger. There's got to be something else. I had to pray that God would give me grief, pity, brokenness for this author. He looked around on them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Here is where we fail again and again in our so-called righteous indignation. Our grief over the sinner is just poof, burned up in the zeal of our anger against sin. A person does something wrong and we get angry at them. And we don't feel any grief for them. We go to them maybe and we express our indignation for their sin, but we don't show any longing for their softening and their reconciling to us or to whomever they offended. That's very natural and very wicked. That's the way we are. As long as there is hope for change, good anger should not only be directed at sin, it should be mingled with grief for the sinner. So there is a time to get angry, according to this verse. Be angry, but do not sin. But the time to stay angry is short. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. That does not mean that the Eskimos who live at the North Pole can hold a grudge for six months. But natives at the equator can only hold a grudge for 12 hours. We know that's not what it means. It means, surely, anger, 
for all of its possible legitimacy, is a dangerous emotion and should be dropped soon. How soon? He doesn't tell us. It's like adrenaline. I think anger is the moral equivalent of the biological adrenaline. Adrenaline is good. The gland ought to secrete some adrenaline when we get into certain situations. It's for our safety. It's right. But if that little gland keeps pumping that much adrenaline all the time, it'll kill you. It'll destroy your heart. And anger has destroyed many, many hearts. According to verse 27, this is what Satan is watching for. The gap called grudge. If there is any way that Satan can assist you in holding a grudge, he will do it. Because there are five goals that Satan has always had, will always have, that he can accomplish if he can help you sustain your grudge. And I'll tell you what those five are and we'll be done. Number one, ever since Genesis chapter 3, Satan's goal has been to make you and me want to be God. When you eat of the fruit of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Nothing helps us hold a grudge like an inflated view of ourself. The higher you esteem yourself, the more justified you will feel in holding a grudge against that person who dared to insult you. So if Satan can get you to hold a grudge, he's got you right where he wants you, right where he had Eve at the beginning, in the place of God. Second, Satan aims to make us act as if we were the judge of the world and not God. Remember what Paul said, Do not avenge yourselves, beloved, but give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. When you hold a grudge, it's as if you were saying, If I don't keep attention to this sin that person committed against me or my friends, if I don't hold on to that, it's just going to slip away and a great injustice is going to be done in the world. You ever felt like that? I got to hold on to this or they're just going to get away with it. As though God had lied when he said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. One of the greatest freedoms in the life of the Christian is to give place to wrath. Give God his right. He will settle every account, either at the cross or in hell. And you don't need to add one ounce of retribution. Third, Satan aims to make the cross of Christ look foolish. Drop with me down, if you're still open to the text, to verse 32 of chapter 4 in Ephesians, where it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Notice the connection. 
between Christ and our forgiving. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So you see, the motive power, according to Paul, that frees us from holding grudges is that God at the cross dropped his grudge against us. Dropped it. Totally. And, and we deserve to have him hold a grudge against us. And he dropped an infinite grudge. Boom. It's over. No more grudge. Now, if you turn away from the cross, having seen that, and go up to one of your fellow Christians or neighbors or enemies and hold a grudge against them, you spit on the cross. You scorn the cross. You bring the cross into contempt. You say, in effect, God is foolish. He dropped a grudge. I'm not going to drop a grudge. And Satan, more than anything in the world, probably wants the cross of Christ to be brought into disrepute like that. Fourth, Satan aims to crush broken Christians until they are depressed into uselessness. You remember the situation in Corinth. There was church discipline necessary. A man had committed a gross and public immorality. The church, in love, brought discipline, excommunicated this person. The person repented, was broken. And Paul writes this letter and says, So you should turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. The burdens of life can be so great that if you add to somebody's burden a grudge that you hold against them, you can destroy them. It can be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And Satan has been in the business of destroying brothers ever since Cain and Abel, hasn't he? Finally, if you hold a grudge, Satan will help you destroy yourself with it. Satan always throws away his tools. Always. He promises the moon and he delivers misery. You remember the parable of Jesus, Matthew 18, the unforgiving servant? When the servant was forgiven his massive debt, turned, started to strangle his friend who owed him five dollars, and he was thrown in jail by the enraged king until he paid back every penny, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, so also my heavenly Father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And there it is again, from your heart, which brings us back to where we started and brings us to conclusion. From your heart. There's a new creation, a new heart, a new nature, a purified spring. So the only way Going back to the beginning, the only way to get victory over Satan in this matter of anger is to put off the old nature, which is 
according to deceit, the deceit of Satan, and to put on the new nature, which is according to truth. These truths, the truth, namely, that none of us is so exalted in ourselves that we are justified in holding a grudge. The truth that vengeance does belong to God and not to us, and we shouldn't take revenge upon ourselves. The truth that the cross of Christ is the wisdom and the power of God, not foolishness. And the truth that when you hold a grudge, you can kill a brother and you can commit suicide simultaneously. The Son of God came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Let's resist him with all the power that he mightily inspires within us this Christmas season by putting on the new nature that he has created in Christ Jesus and truth. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, I just want us to take 30 seconds here in silence to do business with you. Every one of us gets angry when we shouldn't and we need to seek your forgiveness and perhaps make some plans for reconciliation today. Guide us as we ponder in your spirit. Shall we stand for the benediction? And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our great shepherd of the sheep work in you that which is pleasing in his sight, equipping you with every good thing through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and honor forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.